Beach baptism will be next Sunday. Don't want to miss it. It's going to be a spectacular time. Uh, we have many who have already uh, indicated they're going to be baptized at beach baptism. You might wonder, what's the big deal about beach baptism? Well, it's at the beach, uh, but it's no bigger a deal than what we're going to do at the end of worship today, which is baptism. Baptism is the thing. And uh, Again, I know that others have different ideas about baptism, but it's actually in our name. First Baptist Church. That means that we have a significant way, a particular way of looking at baptism. And I'm going to take a minute and just kind of share that with you. We believe that baptism should be something believers do. Now, again, there are other denominations that uh, have a different view about baptism, where it's uh, for a covenant or under uh, 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 to cover original sin or a lot of different variations on that theme. Uh, we have people who stand by proxy, uh, who uh, look over that infant being sprinkled or baptized uh, and claiming faith for that infant. That's one flavor. And a lot of different ideas like that. We believe that the Bible is clear. Uh, and again, this, is not, this shouldn't be news to people who are in a Baptist church. This is what Baptists believe. Uh, we believe that the Bible is clear, that the Bible tells us that we should be baptized after we personally make a commitment to follow Jesus by faith. So, for instance, if you're coming from a denominational tradition or a faith tradition that says um, you are brought into a covenant uh, by baptism as an infant, so you're sprinkled as an infant, you're br- thank you, you're brought into the covenant, you're brought, isn't that great? It's perfect. Brought into the covenant uh, of, the, uh, uh, the, of the family of God uh, by that baptism. But then there is a decision, a commitment that that little infant makes when they get to a certain age, and whether it's called confirmation class or uh, something else, there is a point in time where that young baby makes a personal commitment to follow Jesus. And in that tradition, uh, the baptism that took place as an infant is sufficient. We don't believe that. And again, I'm not saying it's, uh, well, actually, I am saying they're wrong, but not in a mean kind of way. Uh, Again, this is, this is what we believe, and it's in our name. You know this. Uh, so, and again, thank you. And y'all, please, y'all got to understand, I love babies. And I love, them in the, I love them in worship. I do. So, parents, if you ever get nervous about your baby being in here, your young uh, child being in here, uh, don't. It doesn't bother me. It might bother other people, but you just bring them up here and I'll hold them the whole time while I'm preaching. I'm happy to do that too. Anyway, so you have, uh, you have the faith tradition that says baptism as infant is sufficient. Now, we believe that the Bible is clear. And the reason we believe the Bible is clear is because primarily in the book of Acts, we see in Acts chapter 2, Peter stands up, he preaches a message. There are 3,000 people that are saved and then they are baptized. You have Acts chapter 10. That happens several times. Acts chapter 10, you have Peter meeting a guy named Cornelius, who is a God-fearer, and he shares the gospel with Cornelius. Cornelius is saved, and then he is baptized. We believe that this is the way Scripture teaches. We are uh, a church that practices believers' 
baptism. Now, if you've been baptized prior to being a believer, whether it's this faith tradition or not, I'm not, look, that's a different baptism. If you're coming from that faith tradition uh, where you're baptized as an infant, that's a different faith, that, that's a different baptism. And again, yeah, I'm not demeaning that. I'm just saying it's different. It means something different. What we practice is believer's baptism. So that baptism itself is a declaration of my obedience uh, in following Jesus. It is me. I am a follower of Jesus. It's not somebody saying this child will be a follower of Jesus. It is me declaring personally and individually, I've become a follower of Jesus. So I'm going to show that through baptism. And we believe that's what baptism is and what it means. It's a believer's baptism. Uh, we baptize believers because, first and foremost, it's an act of obedience. There's nothing about baptism that we find in Scripture, we believe, that washes away our sin or makes us uh, somehow uh, fit for God's family. Baptism is symbolic, but it's an act of obedience. The reason we're baptized, primary reason that believers should be baptized because uh, it is an act of obedience. Where do we get that? Well, go to Matthew chapter 4. This is not the sermon. This is just mini-sermon. Literally. Uh, you go to Matthew chapter 4, and Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry. And there's a preacher uh, that's uh, really a big deal at the time. His name's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is at the Jordan River in the Judean wilderness, and he is, uh, uh, he is baptizing in the Jordan River. And Jesus walks toward John the Baptist. And John the Baptist already said, there's one coming after me who is greater than I am, whose sandal strap I am unworthy to loose. He, uh, John the Baptist knew Jesus, was the Messiah was coming, the, the, the unique one, the sent from God one. He, he knew that the Messiah was coming and he's like, he's coming and, and he is the big deal. I'm not. He must increase, I must decrease. So that's John the Baptist. He sees Jesus coming, John chapter one. He sees Jesus coming toward him, and he tells the watching crowd, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he saw Jesus. He knew Jesus was the rescuer, the Messiah, the Savior. He's, he's the one that's come to set things right. And yet Jesus in Matthew 4 comes up to John the Baptist, and he says, you got to baptize me. And John the Baptist is like, no, you need to baptize me. I don't need to baptize you. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the rescuer. You're the one that's going to set everything right. You are perfect. I am not. You're greater. I'm lesser. You need to baptize me. But Jesus said this, and this is instructive for us. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus said, no, John, permit it to be so now. Language, baptize me. Permit it to be so now. Baptize me. For thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And so John the Baptist said, okay. Now, what, what was Jesus saying? Well, you got to baptize me because that is what my father wants. And I'm going to be baptized to please my father. In fact, after Jesus is baptized, you remember what happened next. Uh, the heavens opened and a, uh, the spirit fell down like a dove and a voice was heard from heaven. Behold, my beloved son, in whom I am well, please, baptism doesn't change us, but baptism is an act of our obedience to God, just as it was for Jesus. 
uh, to fulfill all righteousness, to do what is right, to obey God, to bring God pleasure. So when we say we want believers to be baptized, we're saying you are already a follower of Jesus. You have already been made new by God's grace through faith in Christ. You have been changed. You have been transformed. You are a new creation. You have a new heart. You have a new life. Everything's changed. That's already happened. But now you are baptized because you're a believer. Why? Because it's an act of obedience. We celebrate believer's baptism because that is the way we obey God. We fulfill all righteousness. Second reason we're, we baptize believers is we're celebrating um, uh, the, the, the family in which you are part now. It, baptism is not only a celebration of, of obedience, uh, it is also a, a, a party uh, that we enjoy together as a family. When we're ba- baptizing at the beach, when we baptize in a few moments at the end of this worship gathering, uh, we're going to celebrate uh, because we are people who have been transformed by God's grace through faith in Christ, and now we can celebrate someone who is declaring they've been transformed by grace through faith in Christ, and it's a celebration. It's a party. It's where we celebrate. We hoop and holler because I got a little hillbilly in me, and y'all have just joined on. Um, but we, we celebrate when we go to the beach and we baptize next week. It will be a time of celebration. There are people on the pier down at uh, Little Island. There's a pier there. They stop, they look, they stop fishing, they stop walking, and they watch you be baptized. And there are crowds of, of young people and adults from all points of, the, uh, of, of our nation who have come to Sandbridge, and they're, they're uh, uh, chasing crabs and, 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 and uh, uh, surf fishing and riding the ocean waves, and they stop, and they watch believers be baptized. And the hundred plus of us who gather down there at the beach... We crowd around and we celebrate because here is someone who's been rescued by God's grace. We want to celebrate. So baptism is an act of obedience. it's, It's like a party. And then the final thing about baptism, the reason it's important is because baptism paints the picture of what Jesus has already done in your life. When you go into the water, before you go under the water, when you go into the water, you're standing there. It's a picture of your life before you came to Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Before you came to Christ, you were empty on the inside. You were incomplete. You were separated from God, separated from from, uh, the the covenant of promise. You were a stranger to to God's family. That's who you were. You were uh, were lost, and you needed to be found. You were blind, and you needed to see. You were dead, and you needed to live. That's who you were. And then you met Jesus, and he changed everything. When you walk into the water, it's a picture of your life before Christ. When you go under the water, and this is mainly from Romans chapter 6, you go under the water, it's a picture of how Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sin. He died on the cross for sinners just like you and just like me. And his death and burial purchase our forgiveness. When we go under the water, it's a picture of Christ's death on the cross for our sin, but it's also a picture of us receiving that sacrificial gift of forgiveness as our very own. And then when we come up out of the water, it's a picture of how Jesus was raised from the dead, and his resurrection means new life for all who believe on him. And so we come up out of the water and we celebrate, we demonstrate, we 
portray the new life that we have in Christ. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. Everything's changed. And baptism paints the picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it paints the picture of death for our sin, new life in which we live each day. And so we believe baptism is a big deal. And we're ready to baptize at any time. Uh, young man that's going to be baptized here in a few moments, uh, I shared at the earlier service, uh, look, um, we want you to be baptized. Uh, the beach baptism is a great time to do it. But we will baptize you anytime. Now, we will baptize you today before the end of this service. We will baptize you uh, tomorrow. We'll baptize you any day this week. We will baptize you any weekend that you need. We believe it's a big deal. If you're here today and you need to be baptized and you can't wait for the beach, you just let us know. And we'll baptize you before this day is done. And we'll celebrate as family. We want you to be baptized because we believe it's an act of obedience to God. All right? Uh, so, beach baptism next week. All right, turn in your copy of Scripture to Psalm 119. Uh, I don't know how many of y'all hang pictures. Do y'all hang pictures? I hang pictures. I hang pictures. I hang mirrors. And here's um, neat little tools that uh, we have now. Um, uh, they're little hanger thingies, little, little, little brackets. And you put a nail through that bracket, and you hang it on the wall, and you can put your picture on there. But uh, there are some brackets that are for that hold 25 pounds of weight. That, that, I, I don't know if that's what that is, but but suppose this little little one is for 25 pound picture or 10, 15 pound picture. Here's a larger bracket. This larger bracket you can use this, and that'll hold say 50 pounds. But there's a neat little bracket in here that that looks all kind. Uh, I mean, got places for two nails and and everything. That's like a that's a 125 pound bracket. I don't know if it is, but pretend like it is. Now, here's what happens. Sometimes what we do is we've got a 100-pound weight, and we're putting it on a 10-pound bracket. Or we've got a 75-pound weight, and we're putting it on a 25-pound bracket. Or you've got 500 pounds that you've got to hang, and you're trying to hang it on a 125-pound bracket. What happens when you put 125 pounds on a 10-pound bracket? What happens? It's going to fall. It, the, the hang, the, the, the hanger, the, the tool can't handle the weight. Now, in our life, we're hanging our decisions, our relationships, our actions, our thoughts, our emotions on something. And if it's not the Word of God, the Bible then it's going to be too heavy to hang your life on. We're hanging our life on something. And sometimes we hang our life on what we want. Sometimes we hang our life on what others want. Sometimes we hang our life on what is cool. Sometimes we hang our life on what our, uh, what our emotions say. Sometimes we hang our life uh, on uh, what we were taught uh, in school. Uh, and, and all those things are okay. They're 10-pound hangers. They're 20-pound hangers, but they're not enough to hang the whole of your life on. What are you hanging your life on? 
My prayer is that you and I would hang our life, our decisions, our actions, our thoughts, our emotions, our relationships, our work, every part of us, that we would hang our life on the Bible, what God reveals, his way and his will revealed in his word. Now, what happens when we hang our life on God's word? What, what is the result? Psalm 119 verse 165 says it this way. It says, great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. When we hang our life, Psalm 119, 160, uh, 165, when we hang our life on the Word of God, when we love it, when we embrace it, when we follow it, when we obey it, when we hang our life on the Word of God, then we will have peace, satisfaction, and we will have stability. Nothing will cause us to stumble. When we hang our life on the Word of God, Genesis to Revelation, when we love it, when we obey it, when we pursue it, when we meditate on it, when we let it soak into our soul so we follow it, then we will have satisfaction and we will have stability. And that's what we want. That's what everybody wants. God's Word is strong enough so that we can hang our life upon it and have a life that is marked by satisfaction and stability. And the reason it can hold us, the reason it can hold all our decisions, the reason it can hold all our deliberations, all of our emotions, all of our relationships, the reason it's strong enough upon which we can hang our life is because the Bible is absolute truth. The Bible is absolute truth. Now, you look at uh, 165, Psalm 119, 165 says that great peace have those who, uh, uh, who love the law, uh, and no one, nothing can cause them to stumble. That's 165. Now, go back to Psalm 119, verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Truth is the Hebrew term emet, and it means something that is strong, something that is reliable, something that is trustworthy, something that is faithful, something that is solid, something that doesn't shift, something that doesn't bend, something that doesn't shake, something that reveals exactly the way things are, the way the world is, the way I am, the way you are. It is true, absolute true. And that's what the Bible is. This is not the only place where the Bible says about, or Jesus, for instance, in John chapter 17, he said, sanctify them, his disciples, by your truth. What is truth? Your word is truth. Friends, we believe that the Bible is absolutely true. From Genesis to Revelation. You might say, how can we say that the Bible is absolutely true? Because that's what the Bible says about, him, about itself, yes. We can say the Bible is absolutely true because, as we'll see in a second, the Bible talks about it being absolutely true. Reliable, stable, the way things are, the way things 
could be, the way things should be, a reflection of uh, reality. That's what God's Word does. But also, if you just have a little common sense about it, here, here's what we know. The Bible, and you talk about there is, the Bible is reliable in its original manuscripts. You hear that sometimes. I don't know if you hear it, but if you'll just dive, uh, you know, um, indulge me for a second, I'm going to travel down a weird kind of uh, um, seminary kind of way, all right? And so just, just, and this is a different way than what I normally uh, preach. Uh, we're just going to take some time. We're going to kind of digest this a little bit. If the Bible is absolutely true, then how can we rely on it if we don't have the original stuff? Well, uh, in Second uh, Peter chapter one, we looked at this last week. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter one, uh, verses nineteen through twenty-one. Uh, the Bible says, and and Peter was right. He says, "We know that that uh, holy men." wrote down what the Spirit of God told them to write. Essentially, that's what it says. So we believe that God inspired by His Holy Spirit, inspired people to write down the words of God. And that includes Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, number, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Song of Solomon, which I've never preached in this church, and Job, which I've never preached in this church. I will eventually get there. It may take another 20 years, but I'm going to get there. Uh, uh, I'm not mature enough to preach Job. I just want you to know, I'm, I, I don't ha- I'm, I'm not wise enough to preach Job yet, all right? But I'll get there uh, prayerfully. Uh, but uh, we believe that every part of Scripture was penned by uh, holy men uh, writing what the Spirit of God inspired them to write. All right, so that's what we believe because that's what the Bible says. Uh, but uh, what they wrote was the original manuscripts, that, so back in 1000 BC, right, 1000 BC, Moses penned what the Spirit of God told him to pen, and we get Genesis. Well, we don't have that document from 1000 BC. We've got copies of it, but we don't have the original. In uh, 49 AD, the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write a letter to the church at Thessalonica. We don't have the original that Paul wrote, but we have a copy. You might say, well, how can we trust it? If, if, if we're depending upon copies and not the original, how can we trust it? Well, a couple of things, all right? So just do you believe that Plato wrote the Republic? You, know, you might not know, but he did. Have you ever read Plato's Republic and had problems with it? You say, well, that can't be original. I mean, how, how do we know that's original? Well, of course. See, you, you're not in school. In school, you go to school, and they don't act like Plato's Republic is anything less than reliable. Do you know how many copies of the original that we have, ancient manuscripts that we have of Plato's Republic? Seven. Seven ancient manuscripts of Plato's Republic. That's it. Well, Homer's Iliad, how many of y'all read the Iliad? I read it in Latin. Isn't that great? I, I, woo! You know, I have Homer's Iliad. And, and Homer's Iliad is this, this classic piece of literature. Most of you, if you went to school, you were supposed to read a part of the Iliad. And, and you did. And so Homer's Iliad. Now, this one, 
This one's reliable because it has 643 ancient manuscripts. That's pretty impressive. You have somebody like Tacitus, who was a philosopher. There are about 10 uh, ancient manuscripts of his writing. Livy uh, uh, has about 10 uh, ancient manuscripts of his writing. There are uh, about 10 of uh, Julius Caesar's, the Gallic Wars, 10 uh, ancient manuscripts of the Gallic Wars. And uh, I mean, so Homer is really good. 643 ancient manuscripts. But all of those uh, pale in comparison when you look at the Bible. There are over 24,000 ancient manuscripts of the Bible compared to seven of Plato's Republic. It's reliable. It's reliable. That's just one thing. Another, 1947, there, there was a, 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 a discovery in the Qumran Caves, and that's in the Middle East. And I was actually able to go to the Qumran Caves before they shut the caves down. I actually was able to go up there and climb around in the Qumran Caves. Um, but where they, in 1947, they discovered a bunch of jars, and they opened the jars, and they found uh, the book of Isaiah. And they dated what was in the book of Isaiah, that, that document, it was not the original, it was a copy, but they, they dated it about 150 B.C. You go through and you can read the words, and it's, it's Isaiah. Uh, before 1947, when they found that document, is 150 B.C., they found they, that the most ancient copy that they had was about, nine, uh, about 900 A.D., a copy that was dated about 900 A.D., So when you look at the document from 150 B.C. and then you compare it to the document from 900 A.D. and you compare them, you know what you discover? The words matched exactly. Even though there's a thousand years difference between the two. That's amazing. I mean, I can tell you a story today. Right now, it's a, a, a... a one-paragraph story, and you'll take that one-paragraph story, tell somebody else, and they'll tell somebody else, and they'll tell somebody else. And by the end of the story, it doesn't sound anything like what I got. But when it comes to God's Word, the Spirit of God protects the transmission of the Word of God from the spoken Word to the written Word to then the copied Word. It's an amazing thing. It's reliable. And you talk about archaeology, and I won't dig too much, but every archaeological Y'all are quick. Every archaeological discovery confirms and does not contradict places, people, and things that we find in Scripture. Places like Jericho, Ur, Solomon's uh, uh, stables in Megiddo. Now, these things that were once doubted because nobody could find them were eventually found. Even so much in Nehemiah, we've, we hear about a couple of characters, Sambalot and Tobiah. And people thought, well, that's just make-believe. Until they found a document that talked about Sambalot and Tobiah. That confirmed that what the Bible said is absolutely true. Now, I know that may seem like we're digging a little deep on this. But guys, i got to tell you, we live in an age and a time where everything about our faith is questioned. Absolute truth is absolutely 
jettisoned. And here we are living in a time where truth is, it's not relative, it's just individual. It's perspectival. It's what I want. But the Bible tells us something different. The Bible tells us what is absolutely true. And it's so true that it's strong enough to hold our life together. So I just want us to look at, by the way, in 2024, I've already got the sermon series ready, 22 weeks going through Psalm 119. I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm telling you, I am fired up. It's going to be good stuff, but it, it's already done. Um, and and uh, it may change, but that's only because God makes it change. All right, so uh, if the Bible is absolutely true, then what, what else does the Bible say about itself that, that helps us uh, hang our life on it? And there are some terms and descriptions that the Bible uses in Psalm 119 that helps us understand a little bit more about how we can hang our life on God's Word, how it's strong enough to hold us. Well, the first thing is the Bible gives us the right way. The Bible gives us the right way to live every day. The Bible gives us the right way to do life. The Bible gives us the right way to navigate emotions and relationships and finances and challenges. The Bible gives us the right way. In Psalm 119, if you look in verse 7, Go ahead and turn there. We're going to be doing this a lot, so go ahead and grab the Bible or, or your app, and, uh, and, and let's go there. So 119, verse 7. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Righteous judgments. That term righteous means the right way every day, all day. It means that which conforms to the to the, uh, to the perfection of God. It's right. And so the psalmist is saying in verse 7, I, I'm going to praise you with my whole heart because your judgments are right. If you look in verse 172, again, 172 says, my tongue shall speak of your word for all your commandments are righteousness. The Hebrew term there is tzedakah. And it means right, not crooked, right, straight, faithful, true. You want to decide how to live your life, you go to the Bible because it teaches you the right way every day, all day. You want to know how to navigate uh, difficulties or challenges or opportunities. You want to know how to do finances or uh, whether you should do A versus B. You go to the Bible because the Bible will always show you the right way. It is absolute truth. You can hang your decisions on it because it will always lead you right. And it will never lead you wrong. If you, uh, if you want to have a life that is satisfying and stable, then you need to make right choices. How many of y'all ever caught in the, in, on the horns of a dilemma at a crossroads of life? You don't know right or left, and you don't, you don't know how to navigate that. Well, you don't know what to do. How do you decide? You go to God's Word. You might say, well, this is about whether to buy, uh, invest in a, in a Roth IRA. How, how, you know, how's the Bible going to help me with that? You'll be surprised when you start reading Scripture. 
how God uses Scripture to point you in the direction that you need to go. The other part of that is most of the time our decisions are clearly spelled out in the Bible. And it tells us the right thing to do. And if we choose the right thing, we will be satisfied and we will have a stable life because we're hanging our life on the absolute truth of God's Word. The Bible gives us the right way. Second thing is the Bible unveils what is good and wonderful. The Bible unveils what is good and wonderful. Uh, You look in uh, uh, verse 39. Look in verse 39. Turn away my reproach, which I dread. And the psalmist is saying bad things are happening and I feel like I'm shamed. And uh, he says, turn away my reproach, which I dread, and then your judgments are good. Your judgments are good. Go on and uh, look at verse 68. You are good. You do good. Teach me your statutes. And then look at at verse uh, 129. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. So, uh, it, you look at these, these verses, it says, all right, God, you are good. God, I know that you do good. And because God is good and because he does good, what he tells us is good. And if we follow what he tells us, then we will be walking in the good. He also says that your testimonies are wonderful. Wonderful there is a Hebrew term that means awe-inspiring, uh, extravagantly beyond uh, the ability of any human being to do, but God does it for you. It is an amazing uh, uh, testimony of Scripture itself that says God's Word does wonder-working things for those who follow His word. And we're going to look in a couple of weeks. Hebrews chapter 4 says that the word of the Lord is uh, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword that gets to the very heart of us. Guys, listen. You want to walk in the good? You want to... uh, back when uh, Edie and I were, were teenagers, there was a song that came out uh, by Katrina and the Waves. And it's called Walking on Sunshine. I'm walking on sunshine, yeah, yeah. You want to have that kind of life? It's not because you have a feel-good moment with a, 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 another person. You, you want to have that kind of life? It's because you are walking in the good and the wonder of God's Word. You're hanging your life on God's Word, and it can hold you, and it leads you to the good, and it leads you to the wonderful. The Bible gives us the right way. The Bible unveils what is good and what is wonderful. And then third, the Bible, and this one's going to be a little bit challenging because uh, some of us don't hardly believe this. The Bible is permanent. The Bible is permanent. What it tells us is truth for now, for then, 
and for then. The Bible is permanent. Just go back to Psalm 119, verse 160. Psalm 119, 160, the psalmist said, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your judgments endures forever. That's not the only place in Psalm 119 where it talks about the word of the Lord enduring forever. It endures forever. Another place in Scripture says that the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Jesus said that that, uh, uh, all all kinds of things will pass away, but, but his word will never pass away. Friends, please understand that the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, gives us instruction, insight into the will of God and the ways of God. It's revealed in the word of God, and God's will and his ways last forever, regardless the cultural moment in which we find ourselves, regardless the inclination of our heart, regardless of the different things that culture says is good when the Bible says it's bad, no matter any of that stuff, if the Bible says do this, then we must do this, even if everybody else says that's passe, that's not relevant anymore. What the Bible teaches us about marriage is that I'm a male and I marry a female. That's what the Bible teaches. What the Bible teaches us um, about life is, no, I don't follow my heart. I follow God's word. I know, I know, goodness gracious, I know this can be hard. And look, it's like throwing red meat to a, to a crowd sometimes when, when I talk like this because, man, you're like, yeah, he's finally doing it, saying bad things about our culture. You know, I'm not doing that at all. All I'm saying is that you and I, we need to first and foremost depend on God's word. Stop hanging your life on how you feel or what others say or what's going to make you more money or what you think is going to give you a buzz or a charge. And let's start hanging our lives on what God teaches us and tells us in his word. And we will be satisfied, have peace. And we will have a stable life. We won't stumble. Not only do we depend on God's word, but Look, filter everything, every part of your life through God's Word. You're feeling a certain way. I'm having a certain kind of feel right now. Okay, what does the Bible say about that? We don't make decisions based upon our emotions. We make decisions based upon what God says. We filter everything through God's Word. You'll hear me repeat this verse over and over and over again because I think it really is a summary statement of how we should live. Two verses. Psalm 1.1. Blessed. Happy. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But blessed is the person who delights himself in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, and he will be like a tree Planted by the rivers of water, brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. 
That's the kind of life we want. How do we get that kind of life? We take hold of God's Word and we do what God's Word says. And Matthew chapter 7, Jesus finishing the Sermon on the Mount said, whoever hears these, these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock and the rains come and the winds blow and the floods rise, but the house stands because it's built on the rock. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and doesn't do them, he's like a man who builds his house on the sand and the rain comes and the winds blow and the flood waters rise and the house falls because it's built on a shaky foundation. Today, what are you building your life on? What are you hanging your life on? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you hang your life on the Word of God. Amen. Genesis to Revelation. One of the reasons so many followers of Jesus are living such impotent, incomplete, dissatisfying lives because they're not doing what God's Word says. That, let's begin. Filter everything through God's Word. Last week I gave you that challenge, this, this simple challenge, if if you, as a follower of Jesus, if you would just begin each day with a first, the first thing you let soak into your brain and in your soul is the Word of God. Not TikTok, not Twitter, not social media, not Be Real, not the news, but the very first thing. Let the Word of God be the first voice you hear. Then you will have great peace and you'll be stable. Today, let me up that. Filter every decision, every action, every emotion, everything. Filter everything through the Word of God. Hang your life on God's Word, and you will have satisfaction, and you will have stability. So today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to challenge you. Be obedient to God's Word. If you haven't been baptized as a believer, Today's the day. At least to take that first step and say, I'm going to be baptized as a believer. You can sign up. You can go out to the Grand Lobby and sign up at Next Step Station. You can talk to one of the ministers here at the front. And we'll help, help you down that road of being obedient as a believer and being baptized. Let's do what God says. Because what God tells us is absolute truth. Will you bow your heads with me, please? Father, right now, I thank you for the power of your word, and I pray that you would challenge anyone here who is not yet a follower of Jesus, may be religious, may be, um, may be a moral person, but they're not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Their life has not been transformed by God's grace through faith in Jesus. I pray, oh God, that you would draw them to yourself right now. You give them the courage and the faith that they need to say, I need to become a follower of Jesus. Give them the courage and the faith that they need to step out into an aisle and come and talk to one of the ministers and say, I don't understand how I can do this, but can you help me do this? And we'd be more than happy to help you. So today, God, I pray that you would draw to yourself those whom you are calling. I pray, Lord, for those who are followers of Jesus who have not yet been baptized as believers. I pray that you give them the courage to say, I will be obedient to you, Father, and be baptized as a believer.
I pray that you give them the courage to step out and go to the next step station and come down to one of the ministers and say, I need to be baptized. And, and God, give them the courage to do that very thing. Father, I pray that even now you would take hold our hearts, draw us to yourself, and lead us to life. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray.